0: Grab your seats. Um, Today, we're going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of Nehemiah. We're going through uh, Nehemiah 2, chapters 1 through 8 today. So if you have your Bibles, turn there or tap there. Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 8. And to start out the Nehemiah series two weeks ago, we called a a 21-day corporate fast. How's everyone been enjoying that so far? Corporate fast, been good? Yeah, you guys are hungry. Okay, that's what it is. Um, I've actually gotten a lot of uh, encouraging feedback from those that are doing the fast and... um, it's been exciting to hear and see what the Lord's been doing. Um, it's been awesome. And our, our prayer, the elder's prayer, my prayer for us in this fast is that Jesus would be the reward. God would be the reward of the fast. That as we go, uh, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, Jesus promised us in the sermon on the Mount that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. And so in this fast, uh, my hope in my own heart, in our hearts collectively as a church, is that the Lord will bring us back to our first love of hungering for him, loving him, delighting in him, in his presence. And then next week, this week, uh, have your ear to the ground uh, on the weekly update. We might be calling like a a next Sunday night. We might have a feast to close out the fast, a prayer and worship night, a potluck feast, and just spend time uh, seeking the Lord, praying, uh, fellowshipping together, and also sharing what God's put on our heart during this 21 days. So um, that's in the works. And so we'll Make sure to communicate that to you guys and your community group leaders. So with that said, uh, returning to the book of Nehemiah, a quick recap of where we're at in the book of Nehemiah is that it is the year 445 BC. Uh, Nehemiah is a Jewish exile who's serving as cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in Persia. And Nehemiah has found out that Jerusalem, God's city, essentially lays in ruins. Ezra went before him and rebuilt the temple, and then a second wave came, and uh, Nehemiah, we're going to see he's going to be the third wave of exiles that go back to rebuild the city, but the walls of the city are completely destroyed. The gates have been burned down, which renders the city completely uh, defenseless. It's like having a house with no windows or doors. You're just at the, the whim of whoever wants to come in and uh, do what they want to do, and so Nehemiah finds out this news. Visitors came. His brother and some other uh, fellow uh, Israelites from Jerusalem came, gave him this news, And when he hears the news, what does he do? It's like he gets hit by lightning. He drops on the floor. He begins to weep and sob, not for three to five minutes, but for three to five months. He wept, he mourned, and he fasted. Um, He runs full sprint to God with his burden and with his grief. Quick side note, Saju last week, uh, lay elder Saju preached a phenomenal sermon on Nehemiah's prayer from chapter one. If you did not get a chance to listen to that, even though we're not doing a live stream, we upload, uh, if if you're an iPhoneer. We upload uh, on Apple Podcasts all of our sermons, and our sermons are found on the website. Do yourself a solid and go listen to Saju's sermon last week. It was a beaut. It was amazing, all right? And um, Nehemiah's prayer was this, was, Lord, grant me favor with the king. Grant me favor in the sight of the king. That's how it ends. That uh, ends, and today we're going to see that prayer come to to be answered. The text that we're in today, Nehemiah 2, we see that the moment that Nehemiah has been waiting for and praying for has finally happened, and we get to be kind of a fly on the wall of a very tense conversation between a slave in Persia, cupbearer to the king, and King Artaxerxes. It's It's a dialogue, okay, between these two guys, and that's the gist of our text. And the title of my sermon, not that titles really matter at all, Um, or that you care, Um, but the title of my sermon is God's Good Hand, God's Good Hand, and we see that that from verse 8 in our text, and the reality of our text is this, and the reality of the book of Nehemiah is that when you are a slave, meaning you have no rights, you're at the whim and the mercy of the king of Persia, when you're a slave in Persia, and God burdens you and calls you to rebuild, torn down Jerusalem without God's good hand upon your life power, and favor, and protection, and provision, there is zippy chance that you are leaving Persia and rebuilding anything if God's good hand is not upon you. Amen? Somebody say amen. All right. Nehemiah is not the hero of the book of Nehemiah. God is the hero. Nehemiah had a mighty God. That's why the city was rebuilt. Nehemiah had a great God. That's why the city was rebuilt. Nehemiah's heart, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Here are three principles we're going to pull out. Here are three principles we're going to pull out from the text. And then I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to pray. In order to follow God's call on our lives, to rebuild what is broken in us and around us, we need to, one, yield to God's plan, two, rely on God's power, and three, seek God's pleasure. And I'm going to unpack what that means later on um, in the text. Explain that later. Nehemiah 2 1 through 8 verses will be on the screen. Let's read this, pray, and dive in. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. And now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? You don't have COVID? What's going on? And this is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given uh, me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked. Why? Why, Nehemiah? For the good hand of my God was upon me. Let's pray. God, we need you. We come uh, with hearts uh, that are desperate for you in this, this fast, Lord, these 21 days, these 14 days so far in this fast. I just pray, Lord, that what has arisen here from this house, Lord God, has just been hunger for you. Lord, there's brokenness all around us, but we just, I just pray, God, that you begin to move the mountains that are still inside of our own hearts, God. The mountains of apathy and, and, and indifference to, to you and to loving you and to abiding with you in prayer and intercession and in your word and the indifference to the brokenness that's around us, God, that you would first, we would pray for a revival to come, but let it come in our hearts first, God. Let it come in our hearts first, Lord Jesus. But Lord, we don't look to, to Nehemiah today. We look to the God of Nehemiah. We look to his, the, might, the might that's in his hands, the grace that's in his hands, the love, Lord God, that you have for us. So turn our gaze upon you today. I pray, Lord, for these next few minutes that you would uh, help us, Lord God, to not be distracted by anything that's going on around us or things that, have, uh, that are waiting us in the future or things that have happened in the past, God, but that you would clear our minds to receive your word. And that you, Holy Spirit, that you would find yielded hearts to you today, God. That we would open up our minds and open up our hearts and yield our lives, not to a good sermon, but to your word and to your commands, knowing that you know what's best and you want what is best for your people, God. So we say yes and amen. We say come, Spirit of the living God, and have your way with our hearts and with your word this morning. Would Jesus be magnified and would he increase And I pray that I would decrease up here and be forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, in order to follow God's call on our lives and rebuild what is broken in us and around us, one, we need to yield to God's plan and not our own. If we were to put ourselves in Nehemiah's palace slippers, um, it's it's easy to imagine that he would have gotten antsy, okay? The city that he loves, the city of his people lies in ruins. Any day, uh, some bad guys could roll in and do what bad guys do to his people, and it's a it's a it's a city that that is a, to be a place where God's glory dwells and a blessing to the nations, right? Like Saju said, the Messiah was going to sit on this the 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 throne in Zion. It was all about the Lord, His presence, His people, and the blessing to the nations. And it lay in ruins. And so for three to five months, this is what's happening. Nehemiah is praying, and we saw that his prayer at the end of chapter one was he says keyword today. So in in chapter one, Nehemiah's prayer was a daily prayer that he prayed for three to five months essentially throughout this fast, so let's say three to five months, 90 to 150 times, Nehemiah prayed that prayer, today, God, grant me favor in the sight of the king, because Nehemiah knew that step one was getting the king's favor so that he could do something about the torn down walls in Jerusalem, and nothing happened for like 100 plus days. It seemed from Nehemiah's vantage point that as he's praying, and as he's, it's, it's, it, in our text, the impression we get in verse one, it's another Monday, He says, I I drank wine. I took wine. I gave it to the king. It's just a case of of the Mondays. And for three to five months, he's just commuting to work. He's, uh, He's pouring wine. He's drinking wine. He's handing wine to the king, returning home and weeping and fasting and praying. And all the while, he is still a slave in Persia and Jerusalem is still in ruins. And it seems like God is doing nothing. And so then Nehemiah has kind of two options moving forward. And you all know this to be true if you're honest, because I think we've all been there, where Nehemiah could have said one option would be this. God, if you're not going to do something, I'm going to do something. I'm going to make a way. I'm not going to yield to your plan, God. I have my own plans. Jerusalem lays in ruins. I'm not going to wait for your timing. I'm going to go on my own timing. Nehemiah could have done that. But what we see in our text is that he yielded for three to five months to wait for the Lord to turn the heart of the king. And because he waited, that's why he got sent to Jerusalem. Nehemiah trusted in God's timing, God's plan, not his own. That's why this conversation happened. And you might be saying, where do we see that in the text? If you look at the text very carefully, I'm about to show you verse one through two, Nehemiah didn't even start this conversation. It's amazing, right? It's amazing when you you watch this, as often we can read scripture and we're like, Nehemiah is this valiant Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, Rambo Christian who just goes and he kicked open the door of the king's palace and said, let me tell you my awesome plan right? He didn't do that. The only thing Nehemiah contributed to starting this conversation was looking like a hot mess. That's the truth of the text. That's what he contributed. That's how God orchestrated this conversation and turned the heart of the king. Verses of 1a and 2. Sorry, one verse 1b and 2. I'll read it to you. It should be on the screen. Nehemiah says, now I had not been sad in the presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. So first thing we see is, who spoke first? Who initiated the conversation? The king did. And his his response is hilarious. He's like, he's he's in the mine. He's like, yo, dude, like, what is this? It's not just your face that's a mess, but like your whole, this is nothing but sadness of heart. I need you to do something about this. I don't want to be around, like, what is this, Right? He gets called out, and maybe some of us during the fast, some people have looked at us and been like, dude, you look rough, what's going on, right? Um, and so this is what I'm getting at. Nehemiah, a few verses prior to the text, were, and he prayed, God, would you grant me favor in the sight of the king? And immediately, a couple verses later, not immediately, three to five months later, <laughs> uh, we were in the winter, right, when Nehemiah found the news, and now we're in the springtime. So three to five months But here in this text, we see that God answered that prayer. God made this conversation come about. This is a divine appointment. Uh, God made this opportunity. And when God makes the opportunity, you got to take the opportunity, right? God will often kick open the door and you'll find yourself stumbling into like a conversation of the gospel with your neighbor or whatever. You're like, all right, giddy up, we got to go. Like, come Holy Spirit, fill my mouth. But God will make the opportunity and then we got to take the opportunity. So two points of application before I move on to my second Point one, the first application, bless you, the first application is this. Where in your life right now do you need to trust in and yield to God's timing? Where is God telling you to slow your roll and to wait and to trust in his timing, his perfect timing? There will be seasons in our lives, you know this to be true, I got stories I could share, of waiting where we're crying out and we know the Lord is saying, you wait, You continue your daily grind. You stay right where you're at, but you're saying, Lord, I want to go. I want to go charge the hill. I want to change jobs. I want to move to a different city. And the Lord's saying, you stay put and you don't move an inch. And you keep doing day in and day out what I've called you to do, Nehemiah, and you go drink some wine and give it to the king until I say go. You know in your life that there are seasons where God God is saying, wait, wait, trust my timing because what we need to realize is that our God and his divine foreknowledge is a thousand years ahead of us. A thousand trillion years ahead of us. A year ahead of us. Maybe more applicable. He's a year ahead of you. He knows. He can, meaning God in his perfect timing and his divine foreknowledge can see things that you can't see. So even though right now you're like, this doesn't make any sense. Jerusalem lies in ruins. We need to act. We need to act right now. God's saying, just wait. Nehemiah, take a deep breath. It's coming. Just wait. Anyone here been boogie boarding? Where are my boogie boarders at? Nobody. None of your boogie boarders. Come on. How about this? I got one. Anyone been to the beach this summer? Okay, and you didn't boogie board? Where you at? Come on. Anyway, all right. So I grew up going uh, growing to the Outer Banks. Outer Banks has great waves, and I love uh, to boogie board. And the, the thing about boogie boarding, it's all about timing when the waves are right. And if you go too far in front of the wave, you will get absolutely destroyed and maybe lose your drawers, right? And it's awful, okay? So, and if you go too far behind the wave, you miss the wave. Timing, if, in case you're wondering about boogie boarding, timing is everything right? And as a kid, it's great playing in the waves with your father, because your father, you're just on the board, and you're ready. Like, I want to I catch some waves, right? And your dad, who's taller than you, can see like six waves back, and he wants you to have a good wave, right? And he's like, no, son. And you're like, dad, this one looks great. What are you doing? He's like, no, no, no. Whoop, we're going to go over this one. All right, this one looks amazing. Nope, nope. Trust me. Trust me. Just wait. Just wait. Just wait. And then you catch a wave, and you get pitted, and it's amazing. So pitted if you know that YouTube video. All right, sorry. Um, This is what I'm getting at. In a way, Nehemiah was in the wake, right? In, In the waves. And he had to let, like, every day as he's praying, 120, 121, 122 waves of opportunity as he's engaging on a daily basis the king and that conversation isn't happening and he's trusting in God's timing and finally the Lord says, here it is, my son. And he waits on God's timing we want to be on God's timing. Amen? We want to be on His His calendar, not our own. That takes humility. It takes surrender. That's why 21 days of fasting, it looks like a retreat. What if it's actually not a retreat? What if it's actually a, a Uh, a springboard for because in fasting as we go weak and we go we we kind of liquidate ourselves of our own intellect and our own strength and we say lord we want to go further and further in our weakness into the soil of your omniscience and your omnipotence that the lord says great kind of like on a swing with the father pushing on a swing the further back you go the further the, the lord can thrust you to the harvest And that's our hope and prayer at this 21-day fast is it kind of looks like a retreat. No, we're not. We're, We're going, we're pressing in further and further back into the arms of our Father. And the further back we go, the farther he can propel us going forward. So the second point of application about yielding to God's timing is this, is we need to be consistently praying for opportunities for God to use us. We need to be praying for God to make a way. We need to be praying for God to send waves of divine appointment every day in our lives. There's brokenness all around us. And it can be overwhelming to know where to start right to begin to to bring healing and to bring the kingdom of god and bring the hope of jesus and the love of christ where we're going like where's first here's step number one god this expectation of a god who's with us and a god who goes before us and a god who can make a way and to change hearts and change futures and change lives God, would you make opportunities? Would you make a way? Would you create conversations to happen at work today or with my family, so on and so forth? Would you do that, Lord God? Would you do that? And on May 7th this year, we had an evangelism training. We had uh, this team come in, Gary and uh, New Life Global Ministries. It was amazing. It was amazing. And one thing they they taught us to do was, hey, start doing this daily prayer rhythm called 10 by 10 by 10. We're at 10.02 every day, set an alarm and pray Luke 10. So for 10... At 10 o'clock, pray for 10 people that don't know Jesus for 10 minutes, and do that consistently. So create a list on your phone of neighbors, family members, friends, coworkers that don't know Jesus. Make that list. Set an alarm. Have Luke 11. Uh, sorry, have Luke 10. Lord, send out laborers into the harvest. Let me be one of those laborers, and then begin to pray for your neighbors. And here's what's crazy: we, uh, we well, one, we're going to share some testimonies about our outreach we did two weeks ago. The Lord powerfully touched two people. It was amazing, absolutely mind blowing. We were out there for like 40 minutes. And two people had their, I mean, essentially their lives changed by the Lord. It's incredible. And we're going to share that next week or in two weeks um, as we do our fourth uh, Sunday outreach. But so as I've been praying that, and and we've been praying that for those that have done the evangelism training, September 10th, mark your calendar, Saturday. If you didn't make it to the first one, come back for the September 10th. It'll be absolutely worth your time. And so here's the deal. Jen and I moved in December uh, to uh, a new neighborhood, a new house, so on and so forth. And we're followers of Jesus, so we really want to love our neighbors, because that's kind of like the thing we're supposed to do, right? The greatest commandment, all right? <laughs> love God and love your neighbor as yourself, okay? So there's one set of neighbors that was just really, I mean, it was tough soil to have any conversation that wasn't just me and the guy talking about, like, the yard, you know, like classic neighbor talk, like, hey, well, those weeds aren't going to survive today, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and so I've been praying like, we moved in December, and, like, literally, it, social inter- it was just really tough, okay? And so praying, I was like, Lord, I finally, I finally threw up a flare, and, 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 and not every day, but almost consistently pr- doing the 10 by 10 by 10, praying for the set of neighbors, Said, God, would you make a way? Would you make it happen? I can't figure this thing out. I'm an introvert by trade. Small talk is, is, is not my wheelhouse, if you, if you catch my drift, okay? And so I'm like, Lord, would you make a way? Would you? And then this thing happened, I kid you not, okay? There comes a morning a few weeks back where we wake up to, uh, uh, I, wake, I wake up to my oldest child uh, yelling at something that she let in the house at 6 a.m. She's going, don't come in, don't come in, don't come in the house, don't come in the house. And I wake up, I'm like, what's going on? And there's like literally the cutest kitten I've ever seen in my life in our house. It was a cute, and I was like, I'm allergic, You're, you have five minutes in this house, sorry. Uh, and uh, Jen and I, the night before, we heard, we heard a cat meowing on the back porch. We thought it was like some neighbor's cat, like. I know he's, like, he's drunk and he went to the, the wrong backyard or whatever. Anyways, like, hey, it's not your house. It's the one next door. You know, whatever. So we didn't, obviously, if a cat's meowing in my back door, I'm not going to let it in. My daughter at 6 a.m. hears it, opens the door, and this thing comes running into our house. And Jen and I are like, man, this is cute. Kids are playing with the cat. It's adorable. Um, it, it really was. I'm not a cat guy, but it was actually, like, it was the cutest cat I've ever seen. And... A kitten. And so we're like, what do we do? What do we do with this thing? Like, what do we do? Feed it, blah, 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 you know, whatever, whatever. And then Jen was like, hey, I remember when we first moved in, I saw the next door neighbor in the backyard with a cat on a leash. No judgment if that's what you do. But we're like, if you got a cat on a leash, you know what to do in this situation, all right? So we take this kitten next door, and we're like, hey, um, we, this kitten just came in our house and we don't know what to do with it. It's super small, and like, I, it was literally on our back deck. And I, no exaggeration, well, I'm, I'm, well it, it's anyways, hear me at this. I don't know what the technical term is, but this is what happens. The neighbor, the lady goes, I am, like she is a certified kitten rescuer, like hard hat, yellow vest, badge, like that's what she does. <laughs> she partners with, um, you know, animal shelters, and so she had... This is wild. She had the formula. She had, uh, like, the, the kitten diapers. That's not a thing. I'm joking. She had everything you needed for this kitten. She's like, here's, the, here's, here's what I'll do. Let me take care of this kitten. Because I, I told the kids, like, I'm allergic. I, I, will, I will die if we keep this cat. So you, it needs to go somewhere. And the neighbor goes, you can bring the kids over anytime to see this cat. Anytime. And so, and, so, and then we, we circle back and we're hanging out with them and all that stuff and they're going to keep the cat. They're not going to give it away. They're keeping the cat. So so watch this. There is, as I was thinking about this, there is nothing in the natural realm that the Lord could orchestrate that would give us more of a golden ticket pass to just waltz over to our neighbor's house anytime we wanted to. That's crazy, okay? Am I saying that the Lord sent an angel to airdrop a kitten to our back deck? (laughs) Yes, that is what I'm saying. (laughs) I don't know. What I do know, what I do know is this. I, it was a season of intercession and asking God in humility and weakness, understanding I am no fiery evangelist, Lord, but I, but I want to have your heart and I want to be obedient and I want them to know you, Jesus, would you make a way? And then next thing I know, there's a kitten in my house and there's a kitten rescuer next door. And now those neighbors have been in our house and we've been in their house and maybe we'll hit them up again today so that we can build a relational bridge and then bring the gospel over that, So we got to be praying. So for, the, for this fast, what I'm getting at is let's pray, Lord, send the waves. We got our boogie boards. We want to send the waves of your kingdom. Give us, like, like all throughout Acts, when we went through last year, all throughout Acts, give us those divine appointments, Lord. Make a way. As I'm in the grocery store, I'm at the gas station, I'm at work, just, just, just stumble. Nehemiah stumbled into this conversation. He fell into it. He was a hot mess. And then the kingdom comes because it was the Lord's good hand that was upon him. And the second point is this, is we need to rely on God's power. Returning to the conversation that Nehemiah had with the king, once the king addressed Nehemiah's sadness, Nehemiah confesses that he's terrified. Like if you look at verse two, once the king calls him out, he goes, I, was, I wasn't a little afraid, I wasn't kind of scared. I was very much afraid is what Nehemiah says. Nehemiah was terrified. Why was Nehemiah terrified? Well, in ancient Near Eastern culture, it was seen as the highest offense to be sad in a king's presence. Why? Because we all know kings are like the coolest dudes in the world, right? And so to be like sad in the presence of someone who thinks they're Justin Bieber, and, and that like, like if you are sad in their presence is dishonoring the, the majesty, the, the glory, the, the might, the, the beauty of the king, right? You need to be like, oh my gosh, selfies and autographs in the king's presence. It was, it was a dishonoring thing to the king. And so when Nehemiah gets called out for his sadness, he goes, oh boy, I just dishonored the king, and I'm literally now at his mercy. And he's got a lever by his throne, ba-boom, that cues the floor to disappear under Nehemiah, scholars maintain, and then he goes into the, the dungeon with the alligators, all right? Like, that's what he's waiting for, right? gah cue the lever, and then he's, like, the cupbearer disappears, he gets a new cupbearer, and dude, you know you have power if you get to choose who you hang out with and not only get to choose who you hang out with, but then you get to dictate, legislate how they are to act when they're in your presence. That's amazing, right? Uh, Anyways, sorry. Not amazing, it's toxic, but it's, uh, all right. Verse three says this, Nehemiah, this is his response as his knees are knocking. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Nehemiah gives King Artaxerxes the classic line, it's not you, it's me. My city is in ruins. Um, Why would I not be sad if uh, the place of my father's grave has been destroyed by fire? And then the king says this. He says, what are you requesting? You guys feel the tension here in this conversation? You have a slave whose knees are knocking, who's very much afraid because he very well, he's at the whim and the mercy of the king. He just dishonored the king. And he very well, uh, this could be his last day as cupbearer. And if Nehemiah, when the king asked him, what are you requesting? If Nehemiah wasn't very much afraid before, now he's very, very, very much afraid. And he has to choose his words wisely. He's literally at the whim of the king and risking losing his his life. And in the rest of verse 4, what we see is that in the middle of this conversation that Nehemiah is having with King Artaxerxes is that he phones a friend. And he says this, so I prayed to the God of heaven. I prayed to the God of heaven. As Nehemiah is having a conversation with the king of Persia, he's simultaneously holding a conversation with the king of kings. This is not a dialogue. This is a trialogue. That is not an actual word, but it is a word for today, where Nehemiah is talking to a king as Nehemiah is talking to the king of kings, and the king of kings, Lord willing, is filling his mouth, empowering him with strength and courage, maybe giving him a little, hey, I'm with you, son. Go get him, tiger. This is your moment. Hop on the boogie board. Send it. Let's go. The trialogue. This is a great way to have conversations with people, by the way. Phenomenal way to have conversations with people. Uh, I'm not going to mention, I'm going to mention a book, A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Go read it. But every counseling appointment that you're in, every conversation you're having with a non Christian, and you want the Lord to steer the conversation, God help is a great prayer to pray. Lord, would you fill my mouth? Would you give me wisdom? Talk to God as you're talking to other people. He's our ever-present help in time of need. And what we see here is that Nehemiah's God wasn't distant and dormant, right? Nehemiah didn't punt to his own resources and say, I have everything I need to do everything God has called me to do. No, Nehemiah's God was a God who could be invited into any situation, and that God could come and directly intervene and influence that which... That which he is, oh, dang it, I've lost my notes. That which he was invited to. It's too wordy. Let me, let me read it. Nehemiah's God was a God who could be invited into any situation, and that God could come and directly intervene and influence that which he was invited into. So the only reason that this conversation ended with, and the king granted my request, was because Nehemiah invited the king of kings into the conversation. You guys realize that? Every moment of our lives, we have access to the throne. Jesus made a way. He tore the veil. We're the most privileged people on the planet Earth. An open line of communication with God 24 ne- 7. He never hangs up the phone. We might hang up the phone. His ear is still at the receiving end of that line. And he can be invited into every moment of temptation and become your overcomer. Every season of depression, every trial, every anxiety. Every hopeless situation, we can invite the omnipotent God into that conversation to be our ever-present help in time of need and expect him to do what he's promised in his word to do. If Nehemiah here punts to his own strength and his own wisdom, nothing happens. But Nehemiah here, he throws up a carry Underwood, Jesus take the wheel kind of prayer during this, uh, during this talk with the king. And If we were to ask, why were the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt? Why were the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt? because nehemiah was weak not because he was strong the reason the walls were rebuilt was because in this season uh because nehemiah was afraid not because he was rambo he was weak enough to understand this that he needed the lord's strength and not his own to do what God called him to do second corinthians 12 9 and 10 i'm going to kind of cherry pick these couple verses for the sake of time but second corinthians 12 9 and 10 this is uh the context of paul's thorn in the flesh A ton of debate about what Paul's thorn in the flesh is, but basically it's something where the Lord said, I'm allowing this to happen so that you stay humble and that you stay weak so that you rely on my strength. That's what it is. That's why it was given to Paul. God needed Paul weak. Let that sink in, not strong. Therefore, it's what Paul says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The impression we get is that if the Apostle Paul puffs out his chest and says, I don't need God, I don't need his strength, I don't need his help, the power of Christ won't rest upon him. Why? God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace, the the empowerment to do what he's called you by his spirit to those that are willing to receive it. For when I am weak, Paul says, in 2 Corinthians 12.10, this is what Paul says, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. This doesn't make, seemingly at first glance, doesn't make an ounce of sense but it actually makes perfect sense because it's only in our weakness that we begin to cry out to God to be our strength. And there's an exchange that takes place. Like, like the moment of utter helplessness for you is actually the moment of, of, of greatest power in your life because it's finally where the Lord has your attention and you call out for help. And he says, let's go, let's do this thing. And so there's there's an exchange that takes place when we understand our weakness and our frailty, and we say, "Lord, I'm tired of doing this in my own strength. I need divine omnipotence." And I'm exchanging my human frailty for divine omnipotence. So the weaker I am, and the more I cry out to God to be my strength, He'll empower me by His strength to do what He's called me to do. Last week we were helping a couple families move. Uh, Friday helping the Pembertons move, and then Saturday helping the Jaguars move. And there were a bunch of us there. And uh, whenever you move, you you know you kind of scout out the house, and you're going, and you're, you're assessing the things that are in that room to move, right? And you're assessing, you're looking at the box and you're saying, do I have the strength to lift this thing and bring it three down three flights of stairs and bring it into the trailer, right? And as, as you do in your pride, you're like, dude, ain't nobody gonna help me like, lift this thing. I got this thing all by myself. And then you lift it and it doesn't budge an inch because somebody has got like, you know, dumb, but you, you've got the weight box, all the weights, the 50 pound weights in there and all that stuff. And then you have to do that awkward thing where you're like in like a side guest bedroom and you have to sit and stand by this box realizing that no matter what you do, I can't move this, but I have to wait till somebody waltz in and say, hey, I couldn't lift this. Could you come and help me lift it? And then some guy who's way stronger than you goes and just goes, yeah, I don't need your, you just go over there. And then that dude picks it up, right? And then goes, here's what I'm getting at. When you humble yourself and you ask for help, that which once would not move now begins to move in your life. The thing, the box, whatever that burden, that obstacle is that you can never overcome in your own strength, that's the entire point. You can't do it without God. And the second you tap out and you say, King of Kings, Christ of Glory, would you come in my weakness? Yes, I should be able to lift this. Sure, I can't. I need a Savior. I need a God who's real and present in my help and time I need. Would you help me? Lift this burden, lift this yoke, walk through this season of depression, get freedom from this addiction. Would you help me? That's, that is God's love language. That, that's the runway for the Holy Spirit to land in your life is humility when you go low and not puff out your chest and try to be a Rambo Christian, okay? The resources of God, the resources of God are waiting for those who won't seek their own. The resources of God are waiting for those who won't seek their own strength, won't seek their own wisdom, and their own Ephesians 6.10 says this, Ephesians 6.10, I love this, the Apostle Paul, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. The only way to be strong in somebody else's strength is when we stop flexing and we invite someone stronger to come and help us. And the reason I share all this is that if divine omnipotence and if divine omniscience is 24-7 accessible to us, it's the height of insanity to box out the presence of God in our lives and try to do life alone. It's, it's, a cra- it's just the craziest way to live your life. To say, okay, Jesus, you got me in the, me in the door. Now I'm just going to do it on my own. I got this. That's the, that is just the height of insanity. Rather than crying out and saying, Lord, I want, I want constant, close communion and fellowship with you. I want to experience your presence your empowerment. I want you to get all the glory because if it's you that made the divine appointment and it's you that filled my mouth, then who gets the glory? I can't touch an ounce of the glory. But if I puff out my chest and I say I'm a Rambo Christian, I get to get all the glory. But in our weakness and the power of Christ rests upon us, man, that's rocket fuel for the kingdom of God, advancing in power. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. He gives strength to the humble that those acknowledge their weakness. And so what I'm getting at is this, what if God doesn't need strength out of his people, but what if he needs more weakness? What if he needs us to be weak so that we reach out to him? That's the beauty of the fast, is in the fast where we, we, we posture ourselves in weakness and we go hungry and we, we posture ourselves so that we look like a hot mess because we feel like a hot mess. We're saying, Lord, I'm liquidating myself of my own resources so that you would empower me by your Holy Spirit. I want more of you. I want to understand how Paul was able to do what he did and say that I gave it all, I did everything. I worked harder than anyone else, but it was the spirit of God that empowered me. It's the grace of God that empowered my ministry. And so the application is this. What's not moving in your life that needs to move? And what would it look like to invite omnipotence into that trial, into that temptation, into that future decision? And Jesus invites, this is the heart of Christ, the continual invitation of our Savior is those who are a hot mess. Come to me, Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all you who are jacked out of your minds who are strong, who are wise, who are the top 1% of the world, you come to me. No, no, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, come to me, you heavy laden and burdened, those who are shaking underneath the squat rack of the burden of being, the burden of life. And Jesus says, you come to me, a hot mess, and I will give you rest. I'll help you carry the cross that I've called you to carry. You can't carry the cross I've called you to carry alone. That's not how that works. You need the empowerment of God, the Holy Spirit. So returning to our text, um, it wasn't Nehemiah's biceps that rebuilt the walls. It was God's biceps. It was God's power, God's strength, God's might that moved the insurmountable insurmountable obstacle of King Artaxerxes' favor. It was God who turned the heart of the king and, and set the rebuilding of Jerusalem in motion. Last point is this. We need to live our lives to make it our aim to please God. To seek out God's approval, his favor, his pleasure. Three times in our text, Nehemiah talking to King Artaxerxes says, if it pleases the king, talking to King Artaxerxes, if it pleases the king, this is what I would like to do. If it pleases the king, this is what I would like to do. And then the text says, it pleased the king. It pleased the king. But then what Nehemiah makes crystal clear in verse eight is that the only reason it pleased the king was because it first pleased the king of kings that Nehemiah's plan, Nehemiah's desires of his heart to rebuild Jerusalem, it pleased God. God's good hand was upon him. And that's why this happened. Verse 8, and the king granted me what I asked. It pleased the king. Why? For the good hand of my God was upon me. Good hand of my God, meaning God was pleased with Nehemiah. With Nehemiah's heart, Nehemiah's heartbeat was aligned with God's heartbeat. Nehemiah's burden was aligned with God's burden for God's city and his people and God's glory. And when God was looking down upon Nehemiah, he was grinning ear to ear. God's good hand upon Nehemiah was his his delight, his approval over the choices that Nehemiah was making. Why? Because Nehemiah's heart was fully aligned with God's heart. And if we were to What's interesting is that Nehemiah is in the presence of two kings in chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 1, he's in the presence of the king of kings, and he's praying. And he presents requests to that king. And then he's in the presence of King Artaxerxes, and then he presents requests to that king. And we need to ask ourselves and go back and and look at what Nehemiah requested. When the king asked Nehemiah, "What what do you want? What's the one thing you want, Nehemiah? What are you asking for? What does Nehemiah say? What does he ask for when he's talking to the king of kings when he's talking to the king of artaxerxes he doesn't ask god or king artaxerxes for a break although there are seasons where you need to sabbath and you need to rest amen for the glory of god but nehemiah in our text doesn't say man king artaxerxes it's been a morning it's been a really tough season i would like a six-month all-expense trip paid you know vacation to the mediterranean basin and tore all the sites of the city, all that stuff. Nehemiah doesn't ask for rest. He asks for work. Never once does Nehemiah pray that God would rebuild the walls. He doesn't. He said, God said, he throws up in Isaiah six, the Lord saying, who shall go? Whom will I send to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls? And Nehemiah goes, raises his hand, says, Lord, send me. Let me be the one. Don't rob me of this opportunity to serve you and to rebuild the walls. So let me, Nehemiah doesn't pray for God to rebuild the walls. He prays that God would give him the favor and the grace inside of the king so that God could use him, could work through him to rebuild the walls. Nehemiah doesn't ask for a break. He asked for an opportunity to build, to do something glorious. And this is the, the beautiful hope of what Jesus invites us to, is he's inviting us to rebuild brokenness around us. He's inviting us to go on an adventure to get off the sidelines, to get off of the bench, to get out of our comfort, and to go to situations that are really dark and shine the light and the hope of Jesus and watch the true, the living, the present God radically change people's lives. That's what he's inviting us to do, to use us. And this is when Nehemiah is asked, this is what he says, and I'm slowly wrapping up here. Verse five, and I said to the king, look at what, Nehemiah, look at what just flows out of Nehemiah's mouth. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, Send me to Judah. Send me. Send me to Judah. Not somebody else out into the harvest. Send me into the harvest. I want to rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases, there it is again, if it pleases the king, watch this. Let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And so when Nehemiah is asked by King Artaxerxes, he's completely ready for that answer. What are you requesting? He says, one, send me. Let me be the guy who goes and does this. Two, he says, give me a letter with your seal on it for the province beyond the river so that I have a VIP pass to show anyone who's gonna try to stop the work that you are commissioning me to do and saying I can go wherever I want and do whatever I want. And if you got an issue, take it up with the king over in Persia. So he gets a VIP pass, and then he asks the king, and I need your Home Depot credit card. All right? Say, I need some tools. I need some new saws. You know, I need a house while I'm over there, some timber, all that stuff. Give me your credit card. And, we go, and the king gives it to him. The king gives it all. And what I'm getting out is this, is we, we, we should commend Nehemiah for, for being prepared. The Lord made the opportunity. He's prepared for the opportunity, right? His discipline, he, he had it uh, crafted out. Obviously, he probably talked more with his brother, what the needs were over there. He schemed it out, and he was ready to give an answer. Like, he, like, oh, you, like, PowerPoint presentation? I'm glad you're asking. I'm so unprepared. Like, let me give you the bullet point list of what I need. But what if, too, it's not just his discipline, but what if it was his delight that brought this about, this obsession it's about? Nehemiah was poked, in a way, and then a volcano erupted out of everything he would need to rebuild to do what God has called him to do. Like, the impression you get, Christmas is around the corner, Right, and everyone's got their favorite Christmas movies. And A Christmas Story, I gotta be honest, is one of my favorite Christmas movies. Raise your hand. A Christmas Story up there for you. Yeah, amazing movie. If You haven't seen it? It's, it's a classic. And it's about this kid who just wants a Red Ryder BB gun. Right, that's like the whole narrative, the narrative arc, is he wants to skip. And there's a time where he's at a, 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 eating a meal with his dad, and I think his dad asks him, Son, what do you want for Christmas? And then out of nowhere, boom, he just talks in three times speed, and he gives all the, the length, the height, the width, the depth of the Red Ryder BB gun, and that's what he wants. And right? Like just, but this is all I want, right? Because every day leading up to Christmas, this is what's been on. Every time his head hits the pillow, this is what he's thinking about. The vision of what life would look like if I got this gift. And that's what Nehemiah, every time Nehemiah's head has hit the pillow and he's praying to God and he's weeping, the vision of what could be. The vision of what Jerusalem could look like. Of the impact that the Lord could have through rebuilt Jerusalem and his people and the grace that would rest over his people if the city was rebuilt. That was, it was, it was his delight. And this is what Psalm 37 4 says. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When you and I press in and we get close to the Lord, his delights begin to become our delights. It's impossible to get close to the Lord, to get close to his heart and not get his heart for the lost and the broken. It's just impossible. It's absolutely impossible to get that relationally close in prayer and fasting and worship and not get the same heartbeat, the burden, the ache for brokenness to be rebuilt around us, for the lost to come to salvation, right? It's impossible. And so what I'm getting at is this. If God were to ask you today, like King Artaxerxes asked Nehemiah, what are you requesting? If God were to ask you today, what do you want? What are you asking for? What would bubble up out of your mouth? What would we be praying for? Would immediately, would it be a list of 10 people that don't know Jesus. And like a little kid on Christmas just calling out all the names as quickly as you can because you're so excited that God's saying that, 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 that he's going to answer this prayer request. Is that what we're praying for? For the lost, the harvest, for souls to experience the glory of Christ that we've been privileged to enjoy? Is that what's coming up? Uh, J.D. Greer says, if God answered every prayer you prayed this last week, how many people would come to know Jesus? It's heavy, right? And so, and so it, with this fast, the next seven days, let's search. Let's ask the Holy Spirit. Come and search us. Break off the indifference. Break off the apathy. Give me your heart, Lord Jesus, for the lost and the broken. And give me opportunities to send. You send me. I want to live to please you. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says this. And I'll wrap up with this band. You can come up here. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says this. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. We make it our aim to please him. That's the Apostle Paul, living a life to please God. And the beautiful truth of that is that as God's children, listen, as God's children, you and I can make choices that bring a smile to our Father's face, right? Uh, the most well-respected professor at my seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, he, he taught us this. He said, often in Christian circles, you are taught, especially in the Reform camp, that you're good works are just filthy rags before the Lord. It still disgusts him. He's just disgusted with you no matter what. And uh, the professor said, that's nonsense. You, can, you as a child of God can bring a smile to your father's face. Your good works done love, sure done imperfectly, but it just, it's, it's a relationship, right? Like there are things that my kids do that I'm cheering them on, saying, hey, I saw that. I saw what you did there, right? It's beautiful. So there's decisions that we can make. And that's our highest aim. That's our highest goal. When we wake up, we get the opportunity to live, to please God, to bring a smile to his face. But there's a flip side to that as well, is that there are decisions we can make that also displease God. I think there's a false assumption that, um, and Paul addresses this in Romans, that since I'm in Christ, that um, I can do whatever I want to do, and God's going to give his stamp of approval on it. And I get a free pass to make any decision I want, and no matter what decision I make, God is saying, I'm, I'm, you know, like, go do that. Keep doing that. That's great. That's not even remotely true to the scriptures. or remotely true to a father-son relationship. I have a son. I love my kids to death. I'm never going to unadopt them. Once you're adopted, you can't get unadopted. God's not going to do that. But listen, if my son grabs the kitchen broom and starts whacking his sisters over the head with it, that's not going to bring a smile to my face. I might laugh for a little bit, but I'm going to tell him, I'll tell him, don't do that. That's not what you're supposed to do. Put the brooms down. Repent. All right? And Hebrews 12 is clear the Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And so if we're living in unrepentant sin, God's good hand upon our life turns into a disciplinarian hand in our life. Because, why? Because he loves us, he delights in us. And so what I want to slowly wrap up with is this, is let's ask the Lord before we take communion and not just assume that that God has given us a full stamp of approval over our hobbies or certain ways we're spending our time or how we're treating certain people in our family or how we're being good employees. Let's just, just not assume that we're, like 1 Corinthians 11 says, examine yourselves before you partake of the Lord's supper because if you partake of it in an unworthy way, you're drinking judgment upon yourself. And so let's pray this prayer, Lord, where in my life am I doing things that are displeasing you? The cry of our heart these 21 days is we want the transit family, this community, to be pleasing to you, Jesus. To be pleasing in your sight. When you look down on the transit, it'd be pleasing. Saying, oh, I love it. Let there be holiness found here. Obedience found here. Love, delight in you. And then, and then conviction. It's not condemnation. It's not. It's conviction. If you're on a road trip and your GPS, you make a wrong turn and the GPS says nothing and says keep going that way, that's actually unloving of the GPS to do. You want that GPS to say you're going the wrong way, turn around so you can get at your intended destination. So conviction of the Holy Spirit is one of the greatest gifts that God can give us. So ask him now for that. Prepare your hearts for to take of the Lord's Supper. I did this last night and the Lord brought two things immediately to mind. I did it last night. Where am my life? Am I doing things, Lord, that you're not pleased with? I want it to make my aim. That is my chief end, is to love you, God. To live, to bring glory to your name, to please you. Let me pray for us. Oh, God, you're so much better. You're so much better. Cry out to him today. He's so much better. His ways are better. His thoughts are better. The life, his plan is better. His strength is better. You're so much better, God, than anything that this world could tempt us with, God. And you're such a loving God. You don't condemn your kids. You convict us. It's a world of difference. Condemnation is saying, I want you to just sit where you're at. Conviction is saying, come to where I am. Conviction is saying, where you're at leads to death and destruction. And I love you. Repent. Turn to me. I know what's best. I can see things you can't see. Oh, let repentance come, God, as an offering to you. A pleasing aroma today from our hearts. Would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you reveal areas we're blind to, God? Like you did to me last night. Areas we're completely blind to you. Just put your your gentle impression upon us, God. And would that sacrifice happen today? Where there'd be conversations scattered throughout this room with the real present God, where you're ministering your love and your kindness to us and encouraging us to walk in holiness and repentance. And that's the beauty, God. Your hands, your good hands are full of mercies that are new every morning. And there is not a second we breathe that we do not need your mercy. And so we can come to you afresh just as we are in our weakness, in our heavy ladenness, in our sin, to the God of all grace, who Ephesians 1 lavishes his grace upon us. You are not cheap and miserly with your grace. You lavish your kindness upon us. And so, Lord, we clear our hearts. We say, Lord, we want to have clean hands before you and clear minds and clear hearts before you, especially before we celebrate your supper, Lord God. And I pray, Lord, the next seven days of this fast, oh, would you come, Holy Spirit, would you turn our hearts again to you, God? Purge us from idols, purge me from idols, God. And return to us hunger, return to us the love that we had at first. Lift up our chins to see your beauty and your worth and your majesty, that you are better, God. You are better. Thank you, Lord. pray this in your name, amen. Well, First John 4, 9 through 11, I'll read this to, sh- to start off communion. Is the beauty of the gospel is this, is that the only reason we can live our lives to delight in the Lord and therefore glorify him is because God, our God, is a God who first delighted in us. First John 4, 9 through 11 says this. In this, the love of God was made known, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. So that why? Why would God do that? So that we might have life, everlasting life, abundant life through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he loved us so much. He sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, for our wickedness. And he laid it upon Jesus so that we could experience his love and not his judgment. And beloved, if God has loved us so much, we also ought to love. One another. This meal is God's love for you. Commemorates His great love, the sacrifice, the cost that was paid to purchase you out of your sin, to purchase you out of the hand of the devil. It was all the blood of Christ, the body broken for you on the cross. It was the ransom price. This was the price, the highest price that could be paid for your life, was given so that God could bring you home. That's how much you're loved. That's how much God delights in you. And the greatest privilege of our lives is to return in delight and adoration and love to a God who first loved us. So let's celebrate the Lord and his love for us this morning. This represents the body of Christ, broken for you, for me. The blood of Christ shed for your sins and mine. Amen.